right, so we will be in uh, Judges 16. I don't know what I've said so far. Judges 16. Uh, verse, I just, yeah, okay, good. I'm glad I'm editing myself. Uh, and we'll be starting in verse 23, so we're just going to be picking up where we left off last week. And I'll begin reading uh, just right from there. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon their god and to rejoice. And they said, Our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their God. For they said, Our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they said, Call Samson, that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars. And Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, Let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women, and all the lords of the Philistines were there, and on the roof there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me, and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the lords and upon the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. Then his brothers and all his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtol in the tomb of Manoah his father. He had judged Israel for 20 years. So uh, this final section of chapter 16, uh, the, the title of this is going to be Please Remember Me. And this uh, is just drawing from the language that Samson uses uh, right there in verse 28 when he, when he pleads with God for uh, that one final uh, use of strength. And if you're reading the story or you're following the narrative of Samson, this ending might seem a little unsatisfactory. Uh, if you're expecting, you know, a big heroic triumph uh, like you have with Gideon or like you have with Barak and Deborah, you might be expecting, you know, Samson wins, the Philistines lose, then Samson leads Israel into peace and the land has rest. Uh, but you don't get a very satisfactory end. And more than that, there's a lot of questions that we might ask of the text that the narrator doesn't seem to address or care about very much. Um, when I was a kid, uh, and I, I remember hearing this story for the first time, I remember asking is it morally right for Samson to have killed the servant boy who seems to have assisted him in leading his hands to the, the pillar? Is, it, is that like a fair thing for Samson to have done? Is, is God somehow unjust in allowing Samson to have killed this person? But the narrator doesn't seem concerned whether or not the servant boy is killed or not killed. He doesn't really seem concerned whether or not uh, Samson is doing this for his own vengeance or for vengeance of God's people. Um, and there, there's other questions as well. You know, we, we might speculate all day as whether, what was the condition of Samson's heart before this moment? Was he, was he truly someone who was uh, one of God's chosen servants or was he just merely a tool used by God in his service? And so there's a lot of questions we can speculate on. Fortunately, that last question is addressed to us, not in this text, but the author of Hebrews, when he is expounding the Hall of Faith, actually named Samson in that group. And were it not for that, we'd have a lot of room for speculation, I think, in, in some of these texts. because. Admittedly, the text in Hebrews, is, or the text here in Judges, is rather ambiguous as to the circumstance of Samson's uh, soul. So, all that being said, you know, there's a lot of questions that the narrator does not address, but there are uh, 
there is one thing that the narrator is driving home as crystal clear for us as the reader, and it's no different than the thing he's been driving home the entire duration of the book of Judges, namely that God's people are faithless, but God is still a reliable source of salvation. God has these magnificent moments of salvation that he can provide for his people. And so in uh, these various moments of salvation, you have, uh, you know, every time in the book of Judges, God's people are in a state of complete uh, despair. They cry out to God for salvation. God saves them, and then that cycle repeats. And the, the emphasis point here in the Samson story is the same emphasis point as in every other time, which is that God is the one who, uh, without owing his people salvation, without his people uh, being able to demand that he rescue them, God goes ahead and delivers his people out of his compassion, his mercy, and his grace. That seems to be a, a theme in Judges. <laughs> and that's highlighted in Samson's story because with Samson, remember last week we talked about how it's amplified how wicked he is. It's amplified how foolish his sin is. It's amplified how undeserving he is of being delivered. And so we see it as almost a fitting or a just end to Samson's story when he is gouged, when his eyes are gouged and he's, he has to go serve and grind at the mill. Um, and so we see that and then we see this deliverance story here and we say it doesn't really make sense that God owes Samson salvation. So the narrator must have something else that he's communicating to us. It's not Samson's worthiness. Uh, and remember last week we talked about Samson being really uh, a microcosm of Israel. He's, he's a very small case study of uh, really a parable of the larger nation. And in that we see, well, if, if we can conclude from Samson's conduct that he's not worthy of deliverance, we can extrapolate that, well, Israel was never worthy of deliverance either, and they should have been left to their sin, left to their slavery. But nevertheless, God rescues Israel. He rescues Samson. Uh, you guys can grab that, yeah. Um, yeah. Hello. Um, so we see then that uh, the rescue of, of Samson and really the rescue of Israel throughout the whole book of Judges is not something that we should come to expect or demand or even anticipate. Um, and nevertheless, it, it happens here in the text. And in that, we see that it's, it's God's benevolence, it's his goodwill towards his people and not the people's righteousness that, that earns that. Now, there's a, a whole lot of things that we could address. And again, what the narrator is clear on, we want to be clear on. And what is left for speculation, we're going to leave for the commentators to debate in, in their commentaries. So um, the, the things that are clear, God's deliverance is wonderful and Israel is faithless. And then the thing that becomes clear uh, in, as the unfolding of the Samson uh, salvation story happens in verse 28 is when Samson cries out to God, no matter how far Samson was, no matter how undeserving he was, no matter how wicked he was, no matter how faithless, no matter for how long that faithlessness had gone on, God was still pleased to deliver Samson and save his people. And so that's a, that's a kind of a striking point to drive home. There's many things that the narrator leaves up to chance or up to speculation that Samson was used to actually defeat the Philistines is not left up for speculation. The narrator makes that clear. He leaves a lot of other questions hanging, but he, he drives this home. And so what are we to conclude uh, to, to start applying this text to ourselves? Well, the first thing uh, that we can, we can recognize out of the text is that uh, the Philistines consider Samson's loss, Samson's shame, to be uh, Yahweh's shame as well. 
And this is something that is actually drawn out in the text, really in the first verse. The lords of the Philistines celebrate and worship Dagon, their false god, because they've had victory over Samson. And Samson's been a terror to them for the last, you know, 18, 19 or so years. Um, and so they say, uh, this is in verse 23, our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. Now remember what I said uh, last week, and I think I've been mentioning this a couple times, in narrative, don't trust the characters, trust the narrator. So the characters say things that they believe to be true, or they might be using sarcasm, or they might be do being uh, deceitful. In this case, uh, the, the Philistines probably believe this. They believe that Dagon has given Samson over to them. But we know from the text last week what the narrator told us. It's not Dagon who beat Yahweh in a cosmic battle and now Dagon's in charge. We know that Samson, uh, the Lord left Samson, and the Lord left Samson because Samson was a disobedient servant. It's not that Dagon is stronger than Yahweh. It's that Yahweh abandoned Samson, and now Samson is feeling the fruit of that. This is the same confusion that we see in the book of Hosea when Israel mistakes God's blessing as the blessing of other false gods. And so Israel actually is capable of the same uh, misconstruing of events. They can take blessings to them and consider it blessings from other gods besides Yahweh. The Bible and the authors of scripture never treat other gods as real. They treat them all kind of as, as these false fake deities who play a role sometimes in the minds of people, but who aren't actually substantive uh, things that, that actually wield power in the world. And so Dagon is no different. But nevertheless, the Philistines are worshiping Dagon. And this is a problem because the scripture tells us clearly all over the place. And an Israelite would know who's reading this text. Well, worship of false gods is forbidden. Not only for the people of Israel, but for all people. Worship of false gods is forbidden. There's one God and one creator. And there's one being who's worthy of worship. And that's, that's Yahweh. And so Dagon's not worthy of worship. So this is a problem. And we might not see this as the dominant drive in the text. But that might speak more to our lack of concern for God's glory than it does about what the author of the text is driving at. We're more concerned about Samson and his, his drama that's going on, and a lot less concerned about Yahweh getting his glory or not getting his glory. But what's, what's interesting is the success of the people of Israel is linked somehow to God's glory and his, his magnificence, his worship. Because when Israel's doing what it's supposed to do, remember, they're supposed to worship God, to serve him, to sacrifice to him. That's what they're supposed to be doing. And here, they're in such a... Uh, enslaved state, that their top judge is now a means by which the other god, Dagon, is, is getting praise and glory. So that's an interesting, it, it creates a crisis in the text. And so the people see, uh, see Samson, uh, that he's been delivered, and then the people say, okay, we're going to bring Samson out, and in this uh, festivity of celebrating Dagon and, and our victory over Samson, we're going to bring Samson out of his, his enslavement, and we're going to put him on display. Now, this is the same Samson who they know has historically been able to uproot city gates and, and kill people by the thousands with, with very minimal tools. So this is driving home another text that, another thing that's been going on in the text, which is that the Philistines are foolish. They're, they're a group of imbeciles. And the text is drawing this out as a, as a humorous plot device that it's, it's sad that the Israelites lose to the Philistines, but we're not believing that the Philistines are a great group of people. We're believing them to be a foolish group of people. They're like a bunch of blundering idiots, right? And so here they, they make a mistake. They take Samson out of his enslavement. They take him to a place where he can do real damage. And more than that, they leave him essentially unattended enough for him to ask a servant to put him by the structural components of the building. And these are not people who don't know that the pillars hold up the building. These are people who are, are well-versed in architecture. They understand that if Samson takes down these pillars, this building is coming down, but they don't even care. They're so confident in their victory that they think that they can flirt with putting Samson 
buy a dangerous position and have victory. Now that's not altogether different from Samson who thinks he can uh, lay with Delilah night after night after night with her knowing his secret and get away with it. So they're, fool they're both kind of analogously foolish. But what's interesting is uh, Samson takes this opportunity, surprisingly, to actually do what, what we would perceive in the text actually as a high note. Now, we might be uh, morally conflicted about whether or not Samson should have killed all the people who were present, whether he should have just taken out the lords of the Philistines, you know, is the servant boy supposed to be included in this number? All these, we, we can ask a lot of ethical questions from the text, but the author, the narrator, is not concerned about those kinds of ethical questions. He's primarily concerned about the fact that God's not getting his glory and that Samson is now gonna be used as a tool or a means by which God will have his glory. And so uh, Samson is placed by these pillars. Uh, he's been brought out for entertainment. That's his purpose there. But what happens is he gets placed by the pillars and he, he cries out to the Lord. This is in verse 28. He cries out to the Lord, Oh Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once. Oh God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. Now we might uh, speculate as to whether this is Samson being uh, uh, vengeful whether this is a righteous zeal or whether this is him being petty once again. And we can speculate on that. What's, what's interesting in his, his pleading is he recognizes at least the source of his strength. He's finally acknowledging it's not his ability to cut or not cut his hair. It's not his dutiful service to Yahweh. Uh, it's not even within himself. He recognizes where his strength comes from. And we know this because he cries out not to any fake God, not to any power that might be. He cries out to Yahweh. And so he at least somewhere knows who to cry to, who to pray to. His prayer seems uh, to be humble in character, uh, you know, certainly a little bit more so than the, the time last time where he says, will I then have a great salvation and then, you know, die of thirst. And so this time he's a little bit more uh, humble, a little bit more prayerful. He says, oh Lord, please remember me, please strengthen me. And the, the, that language is not demanding, it's, it's asking, it's, it's inquiring of God, pleading with him to give him strength. And then the statement we might debate, and again, I don't think the narrator debates it very much, but the statement we might debate is, uh, well, Samson's reason that he cites is that his two eyes have been poked out. Now, this could be Samson being petty, or this could be Samson just saying, the Philistines have done me wrong, I'm going to do them wrong, but I understand that this is a, a more powerful victory that's at work here. And that's evidenced uh, by probably what the author of Hebrews extrapolates for us about Samson, that he's a man of faith who is used mightily of God. And so that's interesting. And so what happens, at least in the text, as the plot unfolds, Samson grabs the pillars. The Spirit of God allows Samson, by his strength, to push over the pillars, collapse them, destroy them. And what's told to us is this kind of miraculous uh, event uh, that when Samson kills them, uh, this is in verse 30, that the dead whom he killed in his death were more than all those whom he killed during his life. Now that's significant uh, because we're told there's 3,000 Philistines uh, either in total or just on the roof part of this structure. And we know that at other points in time, we've had him killing 30 men and then 1,000 men at one point, and we're told that he judges Israel for 20 years. So it is, it is a quite a big number of people. He's dealt a, a pretty fatal blow to the hand of the Philistines. Now we know by the time we get to 1 Samuel, uh, if, you, if you know that part of uh, Old Testament history, the Philistines are not a gone problem. They're still a force to be reckoned with in Israel. But Samson at least is used to deal a, a pretty significant blow to the Philistines. And that's actually prophesied about him, that he will begin to save the people from the Philistines. So he, in fact, completes this prophecy. And, uh, and here, actually, that leads to his death, ultimately. And we're told he's buried in dignity. His brothers come and get him. They bury him uh, in the tomb of Manoah, his father. So it seems, uh, in all other respects, that Samson gets this kind of noble end to his story, 
what other, whatever other misgivings we might have ethically about his, his conduct and who he kills and, let's say, the particulars of the salvation. So that's interesting. And then uh, we can zoom back out and ask the question, okay, what is the narrator? If, if the narrator is writing to an Israelite audience, what is he trying to communicate? What would an Israelite pick up from this text? Now, this is going to be an important lesson to pick up on because we still have a couple chapters left in Judges. And if you think this is morally confusing, if you think Samson was morally confusing, 17, 18, 19, the rest of, the rest of Judges gets a lot more morally confusing. And it really doesn't clarify itself. It just kind of gets confusing and then it ends. And so understanding the lesson of Samson before we get to that kind of concluding section is important because the author wants us to pick something up here before we get to the close. And so what are we supposed to pick up? Well, notice about Samson's life. Remember, we've talked about him being a microcosm of the Israelite people. Samson is not deserving of salvation. He's not deserving of God rescuing him. And he's, he's actually proved, uh, in contrast to that, that he's earned, uh, he's earned that God would actually judge him and give him over to his sin, give him over to this slavery. And we see that. And we see that even in the condition of complete apostasy, uh, complete abandonment of his Nazarite vows, complete abandonment of any vestige of God or faithfulness to him, in that state of condition, in his, in his complete enslavement to sin, when God should be as far off as possible from Samson, that God gave Samson over to uh, punishment, he gave him over to discipline, but he ultimately does not give Samson over to destruction. And if we extrapolate that out for the Israelites, if you're an Israelite reading this, you go, oh, when it gets bad, when it gets real bad, when Israel is given over to its slavery towards its idols, the things that it pursues, when it's finally given over to the consequences of those things, this is a bad situation. This is not a, a situation we should be proud of. But it, it is not an impossible situation for God to deliver us from. God does not owe us salvation, but if we cry out to him, maybe, just maybe, he'll save us as he does with Samson. Because Samson is not deserving. And that's an important thing to know because, like I said, it's going to get a lot morally worse for Israel before it gets clear. Actually, it doesn't get clear at all by the end of Judges. And so if you're, if you're reading along with the text and you're asking the question, well, why are we told about Samson, his moral questionableness, and then we're told about an even worse kind of situation in broader Israel, well, the Samson story tells us that even in the worst condition of sin, even in the biggest example of abandonment of faith that we've seen thus far in the book of Judges, God is not too far off that you can't pray, cry out to him, and he, that he won't respond. He doesn't owe response. By no means does he owe response. But he's not so far off that he cannot possibly hear a response. And this is the same kind of message that you get uh, in many, uh, many texts in the New Testament where uh, there's this uh, examination of the self, there's this call on the self to, to look and to see the fruit that one bears in your life. And if the conclusion that someone draws from the fruit that they bear in their life or the lack of the fruit that they bear in their life, if the conclusion is, I'm not bearing fruit, I'm, I'm not faithful, I'm not an obedient servant to God, the conclusion of a, of a New Testament believer is not, I should not, I, I should just abandon and give up on faith that God's done with me. The conclusion that a New Testament believer should come to is that God, if I cry out to him, if I, if I repent, if I believe, if I follow in his way, that he will yet possibly save me from my condition, from my sin. Even if I don't, even if I haven't earned it, even if, I, even if God doesn't owe it to me, that he is somehow, for some reason, pleased to save me from my condition of sin. And in Samson's case, again, like I said, the commentators, we can leave much ink to be spilt by them over the particulars of speculating on Samson's condition, his heart posture, all these other things. Um, I think we want to emphasize what the text emphasizes here, which is that God, 
is not far off. When Samson cries, please remember me, God, in fact, does remember him, does save him. And that's an important narrative device that the authors use often. God doesn't owe salvation, but he, he nevertheless gives it. God gives Peter restoration from his, his apostasy, and Peter didn't deserve it. God gives, in fact, Saul a restoration from his apostasy of the really true Jewish faith that Saul abandons and he goes pursuing the Christian church. And God saves Saul from that, not because Saul was deserving of it, but because God was pleased to save Saul. And we get examples like this kind of story all over the text of scripture. And so we, we learn kind of that dominant theme uh, from the text of Samson. Now, there's a lot of other moral stories or moral implications we can draw from this. Um, but for the time being, I think we want to emphasize what, at least what the author, I think, is emphasizing here in the text. And we can maybe leave the rest for discussion. So let me just uh, close us in a word of prayer and then we'll get into that. Father, we thank you for this time together, for your word. Uh, we pray that as we move now into uh, discussion and to contemplation over all that this means and, and has implication for in our lives, that you would uh, strengthen us to focus, to, to cast aside all the other concerns, worries, uh, uh, distractions of the world, that we would be uh, singularly uh, here uh, to consider your word, uh, to consider how it applies, and Lord, that we would um, take what is discussed here and not just forget it as soon as we leave, but we would um, begin to mull over these things, to chew on them, and that you would, um, by the grace and power of your spirit, use your word to sanctify your people. Lord, we pray this in your name. Amen. Amen.